It's Great Mondays Radio. I'm Josh Levine, your host, founder of Great Mondays. We help executives from hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations build cultures that attract, engage, and retain top talent. If you'd like to be a guest on our program, hang out for about 20 minutes and I'll tell you how. Hey, 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 welcome back to Great Mondays Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have uh, a really interesting topic today. We're going to be talking about how as a manager or a team lead, you can um, create a high-performing team. Um, with me today to speak on this, our expert of the day is Levi Velez-Reed, who is a venture partner at Loyal VC. He has been around the world and back with a lot, a lot of experience in a lot of different ways. But um, he has told me that he has every team that he's led has either outperformed um, their past performance or peers. And so uh, he thinks he has the secret recipe. Let's see what he has to say. Um, Levi, thanks for coming on Great Mondays Radio. I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much, Josh. Really happy to join. I feel like you're making me sound a lot cooler than I am, but thanks a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Around the was pretty great. I mean, you've hit a bunch of countries, so. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. So Levi, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and um, give us uh, give us a reason to believe what you uh, what you what you claim what you have to say here. <laughs> yeah, well, so um, like like you mentioned, Josh, I, I I'm from upstate New York originally. Grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, did my MBA in Barcelona at Asade, which is a fantastic school. It's a wonderful experience, and not just because it's in Barcelona. Mm. Um, and then came out here to Seattle. Uh, and I have to say, uh, I think it's obligatory. It's it's really not as raining out here as people say. I, I actually quite like the weather. Um, but uh, I came out here for Amazon, spent about five years there. And that's where I, I really cut my teeth as a manager, um, which has its pros and cons. I'm happy to get into that. And then um, did a bounced around some ventures after that. And right now I'm mostly working with early stage startups. So not leading teams directly, but helping other people build and lead their teams, um, which has been a really, really rewarding experience. Fantastic. But, uh, yeah. That's great. So um, it, it is not um, apparent. It's not like you're in HR. I feel like when we have HR folks on, it's obligatory that they are culture nerds. Um, but you, you, you spent a long time in and around um uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you spent, like you said, you spent time in Amazon. What, where, where did culture first creep into your consciousness? How did you kind of first understand that there was a thing that was culture? I guess if I can put it that way. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. I, I, I would say it was probably the, the start of my college education. Um, I had a pretty non-traditional educational background. Uh, I, I didn't go to school. Um, and uh, while there was a lot to love about it, the social aspect was definitely pretty challenging. And so when I when I got to to college and I was in institutional education and you know in groups of people for the first time and, and groups of peers, um, I really kind of had to learn appropriate behavior, social cues, really just kind of everything from the ground up, the sort of thing that I think uh, folks from more, more traditional educational backgrounds uh, probably um, absorb from an earlier age, right? Um, and so I, I was kind of approaching, I think this 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 practice is a little bit of an anthropologist um, and having to really kind of consciously observe how did people interact and how did that change their behavior, right? And how did they pick up on these different cues and understand the appropriate ways to respond and behave in different situations? And and I would see how my peers would would kind of um, not ostracize, but maybe 
demonstrate disapproval in subtle ways of certain behavior and approvals of other behavior and, and how it would shape the dynamics of a group. And, and that just got me really interested. So later in my, my career, when I, I did my first master's degree, it was in communications, which the program I went to had, had kind of a very strong internal communications focus. Um, and so it was very much about kind of the science of communications. It was not a euphemism for marketing is, is what I'm getting at. It was really right. more of an HR focused program. <laughs> Um, and that to me was fascinating, uh, learning about these concepts that I had observed, but actually discussing them from, from a, a, a kind of a scientific perspective, right? Using actual empirical data and research was, was such an eye-opening experience. And I, I think that was the pivotal moment for me where, where a lot of personal experiences I'd had kind of condensed. And I realized that understanding human behavior, human interaction is not only something that's for me personally very fascinating, but but something that's immensely powerful. If we're talking about organizations and the ability of humans to come together to accomplish things, many, many orders of magnitude greater than we can accomplish, you know, individually. Um, yeah, that that's, that's great. And, and that's, I mean, that's exactly right. That's, that's how you could, one way you could define the sort of the shape of, of culture. Um, Talk to us a little bit about, about what you learned at Amazon. You spent five years there. That's a good, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of lore and it's a big organization. And so I think there's definitely different groups, different ways, but what did you learn um, when it comes to being a manager, managing teams at Amazon? Well, I, I learned I developed a lot of my own perspective and my own sort of um, philosophy of management, something I, I write about on my blog a fair bit, actually. Um, and I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that there's a number of ways to slice it, but I, I think that there's a really important distinction between styles of leadership that lend themselves really well to um, crisis situations or urgent situations. You'll see uh, VCs like to call those wartime CEOs. Um, I'm not super big a fan of incorporating military uh, uh uh, euphemisms or, or metaphors into, into business, but it is what it is. Um, and then on the other hand, you have more of kind of the, uh, the, the transformational leader, I think is often a term that's applied, but, but really just the folks who are um, maybe have a skill set that's better adapted to leading an organization through uh, dynamic situations that maybe are not immediately crisis driven, right? Um, I would, I would categorize myself very much in the second group. I don't think, I haven't actually had a chance to test myself outside of very limited examples as a crisis leader. I don't think that I would do particularly good in that situation. Um, and the reason is because I, as a, as a management style, I tend to lead towards consensus-driven leadership. I tend to um, appreciate a, a sort of a flatter hierarchical structure, um, some opportunity for back and forth for discussion. I think that lends itself really well to creating strong camaraderie, giving people a strong sense of ownership, right? Um, building folks up into, into really talented professionals who aren't afraid to bring a full perspective to their work, right? On the flip side, it does mean decisions can take a little bit longer. It can mean that there's more discussion. It's not as well suited to a crisis situation, right? Yep. Um, I would say in terms of what I learned from Amazon, in addition to kind of developing that, that sort of a perspective or framework, um, I had, this is going to sound a little salty. I don't mean it that way. Um, I had some really great managers at Amazon. I had some less than great uh, managers at Amazon. Um, the thing about Amazon is, is one way or another, it's going to be, it's going to be an experience. Your, your manager and your management structure has a huge, huge impact on your experience, your work environment, your ability to perform because of the, the way the company is, is designed and structured. And I would actually argue that for all that the experience can be miserable, having a bad manager is actually a much better learning experience as a leader. Um, ha having the example of, of kind of what not to do, right? And 
especially the unintentionally bad managers. Um, it's in a very acute scenario, right? If it's going well, you have to kind of appreciate that. And you go, wow, this is going really well. Why? But you wouldn't necessarily, you, you can, right? But if it's, if you're having a, if you have a bad experience, I think that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that where you're like, <laughs> man, would I do things differently? That's a, that's a great learning opportunity. So I would guess that I the next so. time that next time you're in the, someone is in a bad situation, consider it a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Such as it is. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's definitely very interesting. And I think it's really important to observe how how do you as as an individual as a professional in those situations when when you do, when you are dealing with a less than ideal manager um how do you feel how does it make you feel how does that feeling influence your behavior and your well-being mm. and what are the things that that person's doing or not doing that are making you feel that way that are influencing your behavior in that way um because one of the things i've noticed and i don't think this is unique to me is that when we're in a difficult and stressful situation like having a bad manager typically creates um, we start to behave in ways that are kind of unpredictable and may surprise ourselves, right? We we mm. we uh, we react to things in ways that we're not always sure of. And as humans, and there's a lot of really interesting research on this point, but we we typically we make most of our decisions um, before we're consciously aware of making the decision, and that decision is typically emotionally driven, right? And then our justification, our cognitive justification for the decision, is actually a post hoc justification, right? An explanation. It's it's not actually a foundation for the decision, even though we think it is. Um, and I think that if you can, if you can kind of set ego aside for a moment and, 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 and try to observe almost as an external observer, observe your own reactions in these kinds of very high pressure, stressful, unpleasant situations, you can learn an incredible amount, right? Because the chances are how you react in those situations is very going to be very similar to how other people react and how you feel is going to be very similar to how other people feel. Um, and, and the reason I say that often the best learning situations are the managers who are not intentionally uh, bad um, is because they're falling into mistakes that it's very easy for you to fall into as well. And often that's just due to inexperience. Um, so recognizing those patterns and coming in kind of forearmed, uh, uh, you know, for the situation can be incredibly valuable. So I had the advantage of starting my career as a manager uh, later in my professional career. And so I'd had a lot of different experiences with different managers and different management styles in different organizations. And I'd already developed a very clear idea of the kind of leader that I wanted to be and a pretty good idea of what I was going to do to get there. Um, and obviously mm. I was new. I learned as I went. I'd like to think I've improved. Um, but uh, I, I think I had the advantage of, of kind of coming in with a philosophy as opposed to developing it on the fly, which I definitely think was a big advantage. All right. So um, let's get then into that philosophy. So quickly frame it up for for the, the audience listening um, about kind of your um, what you realized about your how your teams were performing, and then tell us what that philosophy was and how you got them to do to to work so well together. Yeah, it's it's fairly simple, but I think there's one really important point to make, which is that not all teams or professional situations are created equal. And I think very broadly, it's important to understand kind of the um, the, the, the 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 nature of the team you're leading leading. And I like to group this into four categories, which would start at kind of um, sort of uh, entry-level labor or, or, or more, um, I was trying to avoid the term unskilled labor, but I don't really have a better word for it, but but the, but the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of work where folks really just kind of need to be a warm body for whatever it is that you're doing, right? That That's kind of one level. Then the next level up is where you have, 
you know, more trained professional work um, where there's, there's some work to get done. You're not necessarily building or growing anything, but professional skills are required. Then you have the level where I was working, which is like the, the engineers, the trained professionals, the folks who are really um, intrinsically motivated for the work that they're doing mm. beyond just a paycheck. They're working to build something. They have a lot of drive in what they're doing. And then the next level where I have not worked is um, kind of the researchers or scientists where motivation isn't the question at all. You're not pushing them ahead at all. All you're doing is making sure that they're all working on more or less the appropriate things and not overlapping too much, right? It's a much lighter touch. So I was at that third level, right? The the kind of the engineers, the, the I mean, I wasn't leading engineers personally, but the, the highly trained professionals, right? Who are more intrinsically motivated. Um, I think that's a wonderful place to be, or at least for me it was. Um, because really in that situation, this is where I think a lot of managers mess up, especially early managers. It's typically not really about motivating your team. They're, they're already pretty motivated. It's about mm. not demotivating them. It's about getting out of their way, right? Mm. Um, so what you what you have to avoid doing, the, the absolute key, in my opinion, the, the most important thing is creating a, a strong, consistent culture of trust and psychological safety. Because typically in these environments with those kinds of professionals, you're doing some level of building, creation, innovation. Any kind of creation or innovation means things will fail. It means taking risks, right? That's a necessity. You cannot succeed if you don't do that. But the problem is that if you if you assign blame and failure, or if there's even, even the possibility of assigning blame and failure, then you're immediately putting a massive damping effect on people's willingness to take risks and therefore their ability, their ability to perform, right? Huge, huge problem. So one of the things that I would do, and I think it would unsettle my teams a little bit, but I've, I've always done this on day one with a team, is I have I have a little spiel I give. Um, and part of my speech is, is telling people that my goal over the course of the next few months is to develop such a degree of trust between us that if they're considering another position, they'll feel comfortable talking to me about it. If they're having friction of any kind with their teammates or with anyone outside the team, they'll feel comfortable having a conversation with me about it. And they'll trust that Anything they ask to remain confidential will remain confidential. I will make sure that they have information that they need and that effectively we're going to work as partners together. And I, I like to call out, and I do this explicitly when I talk to teams, that I don't expect them to take this at face value, right? Just because I say it doesn't make it true. It's something I need to demonstrate through my own behavior. I'm stating my intent and that now I'm going to try and live up to it, right? And over those next few months, um, so far, uh, I've, I've been able to do that. And, and, and to the point where um, I've had on multiple occasions, team members come to me to discuss the possibility of them taking another job, but they haven't even decided whether or not to take. And in at least one case, I had the person actually decide she wasn't going to take the job, ended up staying on my team another year. Um, and so one of the, the, the big advantages that you start to see from these little things, right, that that level of trust is incredible. You have wonderful communication between the team. People are unafraid to take reasonable risks, but they'll consult on them first. They're incredibly collaborative. And you get these little benefits like people letting you know before they're going to leave way, way before. In every case I've had someone leave my team, I've had I've had the opportunity to have overlap with their successors so they can train. We've had massive advance notice. So the handoff is incredibly smooth, right? Then I retain those, those connections with those people later on. I've had people I've hired back who have referred friends back. So I'm typically able to hire very, very quickly. Um, one organization I was at, I was building a, an internal venture um, for a company and within about two months had a top tier team. Um, I mean, the metrics from what they were able to, to drive were phenomenal, right? We were able to hire the team remotely. It was during the pandemic. Um, the company wasn't a huge fan of that, but I pushed for it. Had people across the US in this, in this org. Um, 
And it was just, it was just a fantastic team to work with. The numbers they were putting up, what they were delivering was, was phenomenal. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, I was able to assemble it so quickly and, and build that cohesion so quickly, I think partly because they were great folks and partly because we were able to kind of establish that culture of trust, transparency, and communication really, really quickly. So people were able to get to work immediately. Well, I mean, um, so that's, I mean, I, I love that. I love that you're setting this up. You're like, my goal is to create a level of trust so that, right. And then you talk about some of those benefits. Is that, does that modeling is is that how then that trust and transparency um builds between team members is there or is there something else is it is it set the expectation and then you're modeling and then everybody just kind of falls into line or is there is there another thing that you have to have how do you build how do you build trust between team members that's a great question um i think to some extent and I'm I'm going to be honest. I'd be very open to having my mind changed here. But to some extent, in in my perspective, it's creating the right conditions and hoping for the best. Um, you know, you you can't get too involved in how people interact with one another. Yeah. Um, and you have to be very. It's a light touch. It's very gentle. So I've had some occasions, for example, where I've had a more senior team member training someone who was more junior, and I'll have the more junior team member come to me and say, "Hey, this is not working out. Right? Um, I'm fine with this person as a colleague, but." they are unhelpful and overbearing as a manager or whatever the problem is, right? I had one occasion where I had two individuals working together uh, who had a good working relationship, but they were moving the team around a little bit. And one of the people came to me and said, is, is that person gonna be my manager? Cause I'm, I'm not okay with that, right? Like we, we can't work together that way. And and that wasn't the case, but you know, it was good to know. And it was a surprise to me. I wasn't aware of that dynamic there. Um, so I think to some extent, if you, if you tr one of the quickest ways to build trust is to say what you're gonna do and then do it, right? And so when I say, here's how I'm going to behave and how I'm going to try and earn your trust, and then I do it, it's really, it goes a long way towards creating that dynamic. It becomes sort of self-reinforcing, right? By doing that, that opens up lines of communication with your team that you otherwise wouldn't have, right? People are not going to feel comfortable having those kinds of vulnerable conversations with you if you aren't vulnerable with them first. And if you haven't demonstrated that you uh, are, are willing and able to acknowledge their needs, build that level of trust, and then actually do it, right? So it's kind of a sequence. So once you've, you've established that relationship, you can have those kinds of conversations. You can understand the dynamic between people. And that's where I think there's a very gentle touch. If someone comes to you and they have, they have a problem, in my view, when, when a team member comes with a, with a sort of an interpersonal conflict or complaint or, or, or you know, a situation like that, it can be very scary as a manager. It's difficult to understand how to, how to handle that. But at the same time, it's, it's a massive opportunity, right? If, if nothing goes wrong, you have no opportunity to build trust simply put, um, because there's no challenge. If there's no challenge, you know. Um, so what it is, is it's an opportunity to start to create that connection. So when they come to you, it's how you handle those kinds of disputes that will start to help you facilitate those kinds of interpersonal connections, right? Um, and for me, one of the easiest ways to do that is to really just set down early on what my expectations are and what my red lines are. So for example, um, one, of, one of my really big sticking points is anything around sexual harassment. We have we have uh, you know HR departments everywhere say oh, we have a zero tolerance policy on, a, on sexual harassment. Same with companies, and then you know you talk to any woman at the company and and who's been there longer than a couple of years, and they'll have an example for you that clearly demonstrates that zero tolerance thing is is not real. So one of the things I tell my teams is is I have personally a zero tolerance policy on this, and I really really mean it. Um, and I've had uh, thank God very few cases, but a couple of cases where somebody's come forward and said hey. 
I had this interaction with a team member and this was a problem and here's why. Um, and frequently it won't be something that rises to the level of, you know, an HR issue, or if it does, it's handled in such a way that the person who is victimized in the situation does not feel comfortable taking it to HR. And so I see that as my role to have a conversation with, with the other person and, and try to be empathetic in that conversation. Say, I understand it can be miscommunications, right? You know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but here's what you need to understand. This can't happen again. And here's how to make sure it doesn't happen again. Right. And ideally, if you handle it well, if I've handled it well, the one person walks away warned, but feeling at least at some level, hopefully comforted to know that they're not going to have a hammer dropped on them without warning, right? They're, they're going to have a chance to have a discussion. Mm. I'm going to talk with them. They understand now, ideally, what is a red line, what is, is and is not appropriate behavior and how they messed up, right? And they're being given a chance to correct that. The person who was, um, you know, uh, the, the victim in the situation, ideally, uh, now has evidence that I will do what I've said I'll do. I'll keep it confidential and I'll go to bat for them, right? And make sure that this dynamic is corrected on the team. Um, I've never had to have that conversation more than once with anybody. Mm. Um, but uh, I think th those are the kinds of examples. I mean, to sum that up, basically it's when a problem arises, when, when friction comes up, when a problem comes up, the how you handle it dictates how much of a positive or negative influence you'll have on those interpersonal relationships within your team. What about, the, so that's really compelling. Um, and so it's almost like we're getting into the, what is it, the four agreements or something, right? The um, <laughs> That book, right? You got to be impeccable with your word. Or, I can't remember. I read it a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and being intentional about that. I think, I think, like you said, everybody sort of says this is the rule, but you got to understand that this that that's what you mean. What yeah. about the other side where it's a positive reinforcement, right? So that's a that's a that's a reaction to a negative situation. That's a challenge. But you can also think about the opportunities in recognition or promotion. How does a culture forward manager deal with or use those opportunities that's a very good question um so i i maybe to an excess i tend to be pretty effusive with my praise in in my personal life as well as professional life um I tend to uh, find myself quickly developing a very high degree of respect for the people that I work with um, most closely, um, you know, my, my team and my, my immediate peers. And I think that's often because I have a sort of a firsthand view of whatever challenges they're dealing with as well. Um, and, uh, and watching them overcome those is always, is always pretty impressive. I've also been really fortunate to have some amazing people to work with. So there's that. Um, one of the things I've had to be careful with is not to overdo it on praise because then your praise becomes meaningless, right? Um, so I, I think one of the best, the best things to do there really is to exercise your empathy. And I mean this in almost a clinical sense. So mm. in, in the sense of being able to put yourself into the perspective of another person and extrapolate how they might feel based on certain situations from that perspective. So I want to be distinct here that I'm not necessarily talking about sympathizing with a person, right? And, and uh, uh, feeling, right, the, the sadness or happiness or whatever for whatever they're dealing with, but but really inhabiting their perspective and understanding this on an intellectual level. And the reason I say this is because if you can do that effectively with the team that you're working with, 
you can understand where where their insecurities are, where their points of pride are, right? You'll, you'll start to see this more and more come out uh, to a greater or lesser degree, um, depending on your connection with the person and how um, you know, transparent they are. And one of the things I found that can be really effective is finding, and it has to be believable, you can't make this up, right? But if you can figure out where a person's insecurities are and find ways to honestly, truthfully, genuinely uh, compliment them in areas that touch on those insecurities. So let's say I've got somebody who's challenged as a writer, right? And um, I'm in marketing, writing's a big part of the job. We work on a piece together, we get it to a final, a final uh, you know, uh, version. Finding ways to compliment their work on it, how they've overcome the challenge, how they've delivered the final piece, giving them opportunities to really shine in that space in an area where they have insecurity does incredible things for someone's self-confidence. Um, when you can kind of lean on those points, it's it's it can be really transformative for someone. Same point for, for points of pride, right? But around points of pride, you have to be careful because if you are to offer any criticism, you can watch someone get really prickly and really defensive. And often that's how you discover that it's a point that they're very proud of, right? You, you offer some really gentle criticism and there's an outside reaction. You go, oh, I stepped on a nerve. Let me be careful there, right? Yeah. Um, Praising someone on their point of pride is not, in my experience, typically as effective as praising them on a point of insecurity um, in terms of creating a really positive reaction. That's not 100% true, but it tends to be true in my experience. So really kind of understanding that sort of, I always think of it as kind of a topographical map of someone's sort of emotional relationship to their work um, and, and trying to be thoughtful about how you provide feedback and, and be sensitive about the, the, the sort of uh, intensity of your feedback. And, and that relates to the person's uh, personality as well, right? If I've worked with some people and I probably put myself in this bucket who really just kind of appreciate more blunt to the point. I don't need a lot of fluff. Don't give me, uh, you know, what do they call the the sandwich, right? The praise, shit, the criticism, the praise. Shit sandwich. Okay, I didn't know if I could say it on your podcast. Yes, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we <laughs> have know, an I, NC-17 rating. It's fine. All right, perfect. So I, I always tell people, I'm like, look, here's my overall impression. Now I'm going to nitpick. Here are my criticisms. Here are the things that I thought were great. And then I sum up with my overall impression again, positive or negative, right? Um, and I think one of the things that I really try to do is set an example early on, or not set an example, but set an expectation is a better, better term. Um, that I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna strive to be, let's call it optimistically honest, right? If I didn't like mm. someone or something, <laughs> if I didn't like something, I'm gonna tell you why I didn't like it, specifically what and what you could change to make it so I do like it, right? But I'm not gonna tell you I love it if I don't. Um, and, and that's kind of my antidote to effusive praise. Cause if I do like something, I'm really going to tell you, I like it. Um, so I think, you know, being sensitive to that. And again, it's about, if you have that learning from your own experience, working with managers, right. To, to look at what did, what, did, what mattered to you? What did you like? If somebody says, Hey, great work at the end of announcing every single project, you don't care. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. If somebody yeah. never gives a compliment and says that it's going to be like, it, it'll, it'll make you weak if you care. Right. Yeah. Um, if somebody praises you on something that you felt insecure about and they're able to call out specific points of praise that are objectively true and say, oh, this is this is exceptional because you did X, Y, Z. And you go, I did do X, Y, Z. I guess mm -hmm. that was really good work. Right. That's transformative for somebody. Um, so uh, for me, I, I like to use myself as an example. What was my own experience? What were the things that changed my my points of view? What were the what were the the, the carrots, as it were, that were really impactful to me? And what were the what were the what was the impact that those things had? And, and I try to use that as kind of my starting point. Then I observe the people that I'm working with and how they react and use that to modify my position. Hmm. 
um that's and that's really compelling and and i guess the other the other thing that you're making me think about is you are building on your own experience how we st where we started this conversation right uh-oh had a bad manager this is what i would do differently this is what i would want this is how i and developing that empathy because not everybody wants or reacts in that same way and so that's when you're talking about developing this topographical this mental topographical map of who you're these people that are you know that you're working with um is really important because it's different for everybody. And so you can't just presume that what works for you. You can learn from that, but you can't just presume that that's the case. Yes. And it took me too long to learn that. I would say that was probably one of my biggest mess ups as an early manager was really being very slow to realize that my perspective wasn't universal. My feelings were not universal mm. and I needed to be much, much more sensitive to what other, other people's needs and perceptions and points of view this uh individual contributor to, to, uh, type, topography and developing that understanding sounds like it takes a lot of time i how think for me oh sorry um well i would like to hear your response to that but my question sort of um kind of pulling back a little bit is how what's the ideal in in your perspective what's the ideal number of people to manage so tell me about the tell me go ahead and respond to the it takes a lot of time to kind of get to know people and be able to compliment and or critique right um and so this is not something that is and while many many businesses are trying to scale management with their software um it's something that i see a lot of managers struggling with yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, but the majority of my management experience has been with smaller teams. So half a dozen people or so. Okay. Um, so you have uh, the time, I, you have the space, you have the ability to do that. That's a blessing. Exactly. Not everybody exactly. has that. Exactly. And that's an enormous privilege, right? And obviously the, the kinds of techniques I'm talking about can't be executed at scale. It's just not possible. Um, and so I, I think what's important when you're leading, and, and I'll be very frank, my experience leading multi-level organizations is quite a lot more limited. Um, but when you are meeting, you know, having managers reporting to me, um, when you are leading a multi-level organization, when you're in a more senior position, you have managers reporting to you. I think what's really important is to be um, more explicit about that kind of an approach, right? But at the same time, and this is something I will frankly say that I think I'm still learning, you need to be able to adapt to their style, right? You, you can't give somebody a playbook that's, you know, this is how I would do it and then expect them to go do it, right? I think if you if you have people who aren't doing things differently from you or thinking differently from you and disagreeing with you, you don't really have employees. You have kind of an extension of yourself. You don't have other minds. You're just extending yourself. And um, I'm not arrogant enough to think that that's the best <laughs> approach yeah. um, to anything. Um, so you need, you need to figure out a balance, right? Um, and for me, the way that starts is by just being really clear here, here, here are the things that, you know, I promote and really strongly believe in, and here are the things that are unacceptable. And in between those boundaries is your space to play, right? Um, someone said to me years ago that, uh, something like, um, culture, culture isn't what you preach. It's what you tolerate. Um, 
and I think, I mean, it's a little simplistic, but I think that that's really true to a great extent. Um, and I've seen that in organizations that I would say did not have a good grasp of their own organizational culture, that the, the one hallmark that was consistent 100% of the time in any of those organizations was that they would state what they stood for and they would state the things they wouldn't tolerate, but they took no consistent action to reinforce yep. either of those beliefs. And, and you have a real problem when you do that. And so I think when you're leading a larger organization, um, it comes down to kind of creating that rule set. You can't be there personally to make a decision in every single case. So you need to have rules to help guide other people's decisions, right? right. Some of those rules can be flexible and some can't be. Um, to your point about the time taken, yeah, it takes an enormous amount of time. Um, my, my approach to, to the concept of leading a small team like this is, is, is a little bit like a conductor with an orchestra, right? You're every musician in the orchestra is playing music, but it's very challenging to play that music collectively, effectively without someone guiding you. So the conductor is not, not anyone substantially more important than the orchestra. They're not, you know, they're, they're really, an, they're another musician in a lot of ways, but their music, their, their instrument is the entire orchestra. Right. And so they're playing it. And so it's it's a collaborative effort. If anybody doesn't work, if anybody's out of sync, it's bad. It doesn't it doesn't function. The conductor mm -hmm. can't force that. They're a guide. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that tension, um, you know, in that relationship. Uh, there's a lot of mutual respect in a really in a really good, you know, musical ensemble with a great a great conductor. Um, and that's the kind of dynamic that I, I kind of tend to have in mind from from a leadership point of view. Again, with the caveat that I've been very fortunate in my career to lead high-performing professional teams. Yeah. Um, this is a dynamic that requires, you know, a certain level of, of, of compatibility of, of, of equality between the management and the team um, to really function. And it requires that the team is very self-motivated. They have to be really invested as well. If the manager is cracking whip, it's not going to work. What's the largest number of musicians that you would lead in, the, in, your, in your orchestra? What do you think effectively? Effectively, I mean, directly, definitely no more than 10, probably no more than eight. Um, indirectly, that's going to depend massively on the quality of the manager that have reporting to me. It's ultimately going to come down to them. It's not me, right? Yeah, no. The, the, no, the, the, the question was the first was the first one. When, you, yeah. when we're thinking about managing and the sort of intensiveness of it, um, yeah, I think eight's, eight's right. 12, I've heard as well. There's the two pizza rule, I think. Yeah. Um, where you, you know, only, you only want to have on a team as many people as two pizzas would fill, uh, would feed. We had the two pizza rule at Amazon, but I, my sense was it was more of a, a, a rule around kind of quality of decision-making as opposed to quality of management. Mm. Um, the idea that if you get more than two people, two pizzas worth of people in a room, you have too much discussion and debate and you mm. start revving and you can't really come to a decision. Um, which I would actually agree with. That's one of the management principles that I, I definitely took away from Amazon for sure. Yeah. Um, although I eat a lot of pizza, so. <laughs> I know I can eat a lot of pizza. So it's basically you and me in the room, right? That's it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll make some decisions real quick. Yeah. Um, Levi Velez Reed, uh, venture partner at Loyal VC, ex-Amazon ma uh, manager extraordinaire. Thank you for sharing your wisdom um, with Great Mondays Radio. It was really nice to talk to you. I learned a ton. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much, Josh. It's really been a pleasure. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. Hey, if you want to be a guest, head over to radio.greatmondays.com. And if you think this episode was interesting and your friends and fans would enjoy it, please share on social media. 
And if you want to get more people to understand the power of company culture in business today, please rate and review Great Mondays Radio on your podcast feed. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to hear more candid conversations with culture leaders, subscribe to Great Mondays Radio. I'd love to connect with you. Find me on LinkedIn at aka Josh Levine, on YouTube at Great Mondays, and you can always email me, josh at greatmondays.com. Find out more about our work with hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations at greatmondays.com. I'm Josh Levine. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. 